This is the, the last week of this series that we've called Together-ish. And what we've been exploring is what does it actually look like from the Bible for us to live as a family the way that God would intend for us to live as a family. And from the very beginning, we kind of acknowledged that uh, our church is big, it grew fast. There's a level of disconnection that people feel from one another. And we've got some work to do here. We've acknowledged that from the beginning. But the question that I want us to pose today is, what does the Bible tell us? What does the Bible show us about how we should live in this new reality as part of God's family? Because we want to be disciples of Jesus. And what it means to be a disciple, very simply, is that we would live the kind of life that Jesus himself lived. That we would be like him in his character, the kind of person that he was, but we would also be like him in his competencies, meaning the things that he did. Because he said, you're going to do the same things that I did, and you're going to do even greater things than that. So we've got to ask ourselves the question, what are those greater things? What are the things that his followers did? How did they live as a community together? And I'm just going to be right up front, kind of the The driving force behind the things I want to share today has been some of my study over the last probably two and a half to three years where I've just been asking that very simple question. What does it look like to live the kind of life that Jesus lived? And what did the followers of Jesus that spent time with him, what did their life look like? And this is what that last two and a half years has done for me. As I began to spend time in this book, that picture of what it is that God wants for us went up here. It is lofty. It is beyond where I'm at. And I started to see my personal experience of my life and my family, and I think even my church family was down here. We weren't living out what it seemed like, this picture that God gave us. And there was this huge gap. And I just began to ask myself, what am I going to do about this gap? Because if this is the picture of what it looks like, When God's Holy Spirit is at work in and through the life of his kids, his children, his family, and my life looks like this, what am I going to do about that? And Journey, here's my fear, because oftentimes what we can do, this can be the picture and this can be our life. What we can be tempted to want to do is to lower Scripture to the level of our experience, And try to explain why why we're not experiencing the things that God intended for us. But Journey, this is what I'm going to ask us to do today. Let's just let Scripture be Scripture. Let Scripture speak for itself. And let's begin to ask the question, God, what do you need to do in us to raise our experience to the level of your Scripture? That's what I'm going to ask us to do today. And I know why it is sometimes that we don't do that. We have these exegetical and hermeneutical gymnastics that we do that says, well, you know, those things that we're reading in the Bible, those, a lot of those things are cultural. They don't really translate into today, into today. And sometimes people will say, you know, those accounts, they were more just descriptive of what happened. They're not necessarily prescriptive of the kinds of things that have to happen today. I understand all of those arguments But this is what I'm asking us to do today, Journey. Could we just hold up the scripture and with kind of an unbiased opinion, just say, what is that picture like? And God, where is my life in relation to that picture? 
Because this has been my experience. As I've spent time with God, alone, talking to him, reading this book, there's some unease that started to grow inside of me. And there was just this sense that there's more. I absolutely believe that God is saying to me, and I think he's saying it to many of us, that there's more for us to experience of God, both individually and corporately as a family, than we are right now. I know some of you might be just saying, you know, Bob, I'm fine. I, I kind of like my life the way it is right now. I don't want to create a lot of room for a lot more things. I don't have time for a lot of other things. I like to just come to Journey. I like to just walk in here. I want to hear some good music. I want to hear a message. I kind of want to get my God on for an hour or so. And then I just want to go back and I do my life. And that's okay. That's okay. But it's not okay if we're thinking about this. Because the picture doesn't always match up to that. And what I believe is true is I don't think I'm the only one because I've had conversations with a lot of people. There's other people that are experiencing that sense of unrest, that sense that there's actually more that God wants for us to experience. And friends, he wants us to experience it together. Not together-ish. He wants us to experience it together. But I'll say right from the outside, together is hard. If it was easy, we would do it just like that. But together is hard. There's lots of reasons not to do together. But what I would also say to you, even though it's hard, even though it might be uncomfortable, there's more to it. There's more at stake than just your coziness and your comfort. When we think about the big picture of what God is doing in the world, his redemptive mission in the world of bringing people back into a relationship with him, Our ability to be able to live together has a huge effect on the effectiveness of God's redemptive mission in the world. This is how Jesus explained it. In John chapter 13, when he was talking to his disciples, this is what he said. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Then here's what he says, by this, meaning the result of that will be, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The thing that is going to tell people outside of the family of God that this is the real deal is how we relate to one another. How we love one another, our ability to do together. That's how they're going to know. If a seeker, someone that was just maybe testing the waters of Christianity, wanting to kick the tires a little bit, walked in the back of journey, what Jesus is saying here is the greatest evidence that God's spirit is among you, that you are my disciples. It's not great worship music. It's not a message. It's not excellent programming. He said the thing that's actually going to tell people that you belong to me is how you relate to one another. That's how they're going to know. How do we love one another? Friends, that's what the world is looking for. That's what they're watching for. Do we love one another and do we love them? And even to, to raise the bar a little bit more, 
a couple chapters later when Jesus is actually praying for his disciples, and not only his disciples, but he says, all those who would believe as a result of you. And you know who he's talking about there? He's talking about us. He's talking about everyone that would come to faith. As he starts to pray for us, you know what he doesn't pray for? He doesn't pray about your job. He doesn't pray about your marriage. He doesn't pray about your finances. He doesn't pray about your rebellious teenagers. You know what he prays about? He prays about this. He prays about together. He prays that we would be one. This is what he prays in John 17. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that, may they be in us so that, for the purpose of that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's what's going to cause the world to believe the reality of the gospel that Jesus is sent from God is us loving one another, us being one. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Again, it's that picture of together. Not together-ish, together, complete unity. And again, he says, this is going to be the result. Then the world will know that you sent me. And have loved them even as you have loved me. There's a lot at stake writing up on us being able to live this out. To live together. When he talks about what it's going to take to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He didn't ask us to learn to argue with people about the gospel. He didn't say you need to learn wise and persuasive words. He didn't say you have to construct the biggest and best worship gatherings on the planet. What he would do if he could just sit here and say, Journey, this is the big deal. If you want to show the world that I am who I claim to be, love one another. Be together. And if you want to follow this theme, this theme of unity, this theme of oneness, of loving one another, in the power of the Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament, it's everywhere. As I started to collect this, I just thought, I've got to quit eventually. I won't even get into the meat of the message if I'm just talking about all the places where God is talking about the importance of being one. It's everywhere. And when God's Spirit is actually at work and thriving in and through His people, you're going to see it. You're going to see together. But what does that actually look like in real life? If we're going to actually do what I said and we're going to hold up the scripture and we're going to just let scripture speak to us, what does it actually say? What does it actually look like for us to live together? What we're going to do is we're going to kind of do a little bit of an overview of the very beginning of the book of Acts. Because this is the book that shows us the launching of the church. That God's spirit is poured out, the church is launched, and we just get to see these snapshots of how those early believers, those ones that followed Jesus throughout his life, what did they internalize from their life with him? What were the things that they took away in terms of how they lived with one another? 
That's what we're going to look at. And what we're not going to do, friends, we're not going to do anything that would take the scripture and try to lower it down to the level of our experience. We're going to look at it for what it is, and we're just going to say, God, by your grace, would you help us raise our experience to the level of your scripture? The book of Acts begins with 120 people gathered on a little hill outside of Jerusalem. After three years of ministry, these were the people that Jesus has collected, his closest followers. And as they're gathered there, he told them to wait. He said, wait until you receive the Holy Spirit, till you receive power from on high. Acts 1.8, Jesus says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, there's that picture. When God's spirit is at work in and through his people, he said, what's going to happen is you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be the ones that start to declare the reality. And he said, it's going to start in Jerusalem and it's going to grow. Judea, Samaria, and ultimately the message is going to go to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus gave us, that preview of what was going to happen when the Spirit comes. And in Acts chapter 2, that exact thing happens. The Spirit is poured out. The believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, boom, all heaven breaks loose in Acts chapter 2. It's unbelievable. And the preview that Jesus gave us, it takes fruition in the life of Peter. He said that when you receive the Spirit... You're going to be my witnesses. Peter immediately jumps up in the midst of this crowd that's in Jerusalem. And just remind you, this is the same crowd that weeks before killed the Messiah for the same message. Peter jumps up and begins to preach to everyone that's there who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Now, can I make just a little bit of an editor's note right now? Can can we think just a little bit about Peter Just a handful of weeks before, at the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus, what did Peter do? He was approached by a little girl. Little girl. Comes up to him and says, you know him. You were with him. You're one of them. And what did Peter do? He was just bold. No, wasn't bold at all. He backpedaled, backpedaled. I don't even know who he is. Now we just fast forward just a handful of weeks, clothed on from on high, filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches powerfully the gospel message to this group of people. And there's an incredible response. This little group of 120 people like that becomes 3,120 people. And the church is off. The church is off and growing And what I want us to do is I want us to now just take a little bit of time to read the description of what were the things that marked this community of people. What were the things that were true of them? In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 40, we see this beautiful snapshot of what a spirit-filled community of Christ followers looked like. Starting in verse 40, It says, with many other words, he, that's Peter, warned them. 
And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Powerful message. But then here's this picture. This is what they did as a result. Friends, this is what together looked like. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. How how many of them were together? A few of the committed ones, a handful, all of them. Every one of them collected together. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together. How often did they get together? Every day. Every stinking day they got together. Can you imagine that? Every day they got together. And they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Every day it grew. Every day it grew. Every day people were coming into this community. This Holy Spirit, Christ-honoring community. When I look at that picture, I think there's at least three elements or three ingredients of what does it look like to be a spirit-empowered, spirit-filled community. The first would be that there is a passionate spirituality. There is a radical community. And there is a missional zeal. Friends, that's what together looks like. You take any one of those things away and it's not the together that the Bible describes. The first one is a passionate spirituality. It says when they got together, they engaged in teaching. The apostles' teaching, the New Testament. They prayed. They celebrated communion. And the miraculous was on display among them as they sought God together. Every day. Every day, this is what they did together. And in verse 43, it says this. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. They were just filled with awe. Because God was there. He was among them. That word there, awe, sometimes and often is in the New Testament is translated fear. And, and it's not this like fear like I'm afraid I've got to get out of here. But it's this sense of reverential awe. When they came together, the reality that God was present was so tangible that they were just like, what in the world is going on? They just didn't know what was going to happen next. And it talks about signs and wonders were performed by the apostles. And it doesn't say in specific what those were. But we know from the New Testament, the signs in the life of Jesus that the kingdom of God was breaking through was the one was the powerful proclamation of the good news of the kingdom. That was one. Another was the healing of diseases and sicknesses. And another one was that the domain of darkness was pushed back. The kingdom of heaven was breaking in and darkness would flee. Sometimes that came in the form of casting out demons. But any ground that the evil one had taken was pushed back. Those were signs that God's kingdom was coming. 
And this kind of experience that they had together, the sense of awe at what God was doing tangibly in their midst, it wasn't just a one-time thing. This was just part of their normal pattern of life. When we get to Acts chapter 4, we see this group of people, again, they're together and they're praying, believing, trusting God together to do big things in their midst. Verse 30, it says, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then it says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. That's a prayer meeting. Am I right? Groups of people seeking the Lord together and the actual place where they were at begins to shake. Wouldn't that affect you? If you came in here and as we sought the Lord together, maybe we prayed and believed that God would break in, the commons here would begin to shake. Wouldn't there be a sense of awe, a sense of what in the world is going on? Here's the question that I wrestle with when I'm sitting with the word and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking about what's going on in me. I ask the question, do I have that kind of expectation that God at any minute, his kingdom could break through in power? Do I live my life like that? Do I make room for that in my life? Do we make room for that in our lives? As you drive into the parking lot and come in here, is there an expectation Maybe God could break in in a supernatural way that would just leave us with this sense of awe at his power. Or do we just kind of drive up and grab our copy, grab a, grab a seat? Is there this anticipation of what God could do? Does God still do those things today? So I think sometimes if we want to do what I'm told us not to do and lower the level of the scripture to the level of our experience, we could say, you know what, well, God just doesn't do those kind of things today anymore. Doesn't he? You think that maybe he does? Because here's what troubles me. That same spirit that was poured out in Acts chapter two, that same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that same spirit, if you are a follower of Jesus, that spirit lives in you. And that spirit lives in us as a community. Why couldn't he do the same things today that he did then? I mean, this, it was 2,000 years ago. Is he tired? Is he worn out? I don't think he is. Friends, I need to, we need to ask the question, God, what is it going to take for us to raise our experience to the level of the scriptures rather than bring the scriptures down to the level of our experience? What if? God's power just showed up in tangible ways around us. Are we willing to make room for that? That's what marked this community. There was a passionate pursuit of God, a passionate spirituality. But it wasn't just about this vertical relationship with God. There was amazing things that were happening in their relationships with each other. There was a radical, an absolutely radical community Here's what it says about that. They got together every day. And I, and I emphasized that earlier, but the scripture says it every day. I mean, either it's true or it's not. Every day they got together. Their lives were enmeshed with one another. 
They're, they did life together. And they met in different ways. They met in the temple courts, larger group meetings. They met in their homes, smaller group meetings. There was this sense of belonging, this sense that we're in this together. They ate together and they shared life together. But here's what's hard for me. There's one piece of this picture of this community that just kind of blows me away. Like, I think I can get my mind around the everyday. That would be hard. We'd have to organize some things differently. We could get together with a community of believers every day. But here's something that just blew my mind. That section of verses 44 and 45. It says, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Isn't that crazy? I mean, isn't that crazy? I mean, that's a picture of together, but isn't that crazy? We are so together. We are so linked with each other in our lives that the, that the dividing line between personal property becomes blurred and even diminishes. Do, do you hear what that's saying? That's saying, if you have something, I have something. You have a dollar, I have a dollar. That sense of community that, is, that just seems un-American, doesn't it? In some ways, we all have our own stuff. That's how we think about it. It may be un-American, it may be unusual, but it's incredibly biblical. And you can say to yourself, well, you know, there was a lot of crazy stuff going on as the Spirit was being poured out. You know, they, they probably just, you know, got a little over-exuberant, and did some things that they, you know, if they could go back, they would, they would want to have their 401k back. And that isn't what happened. This actually became more of the pattern of the way they lived together. Because we, we fast forward just a, a couple of chapters as Luke continues to explain what the church looked like. And this is what we see in Acts chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed to have any of their possessions that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now that's taking an offering, isn't it? I mean, just everyone bringing all their stuff. And the only direction is let's just make sure nobody's got a need among us. This is what those people that walked with Jesus, this is what they believed that he wanted them to live out in their relationships with one another. That was this picture of together. Not together-ish. That's together when our lives are like that. But you know what I love about that piece that we just read too? Is as they're talking about that section where they were committed to one another, right in the middle of it, they're just talking about, and the gospel was proclaimed boldly. There's just this sense that when we're all in this together, we're about kingdom things together. And that togetherness actually causes the kingdom of God, to grow and to flourish. And you know what I'm really impressed 
about what happened through this community of people. This DNA that they had picked up from Jesus that they started to impart to the culture around them, it wasn't just for themselves. This together idea that they were grabbing a hold of and living out, they didn't live this out just with other people who were followers of Jesus. They actually lived these same kind of things out with people that didn't even know him. They were generous like this toward people that were actually their enemies, that were actually their oppressors. There's a quote that I want to read you from Julian the Apostate. He was the last pagan emperor of Rome, and he clearly understood the power of these Christians. He watched this sense of together that they had, and it made him angry. Here's what he said. These impious Galileans, meaning Christians, they not only feed their own, but ours also, welcoming them with their agape, their love. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes. While the, while the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. And by a display of false compassion, have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. Such practice is common among them and causes contempt for our gods. He can't explain it. He can't explain what's going on inside. Who would cause them to do that? We can't even imagine hardly being able to do that for each other. But it wasn't even just about each other. It was about everyone This love that we've experienced from Jesus, this generosity that we've experienced from him, it's meant to give away. It's not meant for us to keep and enjoy. It's not about us just becoming only committed to each other, us four and no more, and we're just gonna be codependent with each other. They gave it away, even to those people that wanted to oppress them. Let's just think for a minute, what would it be like if together looked like this for us? What if the things that we're reading right there looked like that for us? I want want to think a little bit, and maybe what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick on this section right here a little bit. I'm not going to call anybody up, so you can just relax if you even had that thought. But let's just imagine that, say, this group of 50 right here, kind of in the front of this section, let's just imagine that everybody in this group knows everybody's name. Now, now I know enough about our church to know that not everybody in this group of 50 knows everybody's name. But, but even if that was the bar, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if you just came in and you sat in this section, there were 50 people that but they might not know anything about you, but they at least knew your name. They could say hello to you. That, that would move us ahead as a church if we just knew each other's name. But now imagine this. Those 50 people, you not only know each other's name, you know the deepest need that every one of you have in this group. And now some of you might be uncomfortable thinking, there's nobody on the planet that knows what my deepest need is, much less this group of 50 people around me. But what if all of those 50 people, they knew your deepest need, but not only did they knew it, they were praying around that for you. They were regularly finding out what was going on. They knew your need. They were praying with you around the deepest things in your life. And what if they were compelled, no matter what cost to them, that they were going to be there with you to help meet that need? 
that that was going to be a part of what it meant to be a part of this family, that we were going to meet each other's needs. Do you try to picture that in your mind? From knowing our names, knowing our needs, praying about our needs, to meeting each other's needs sacrificially. Imagine that going on in a family. Some of you are thinking that doesn't even happen in my nuclear family, my blood family. I can't imagine it. But you know what would happen if this was going on in our church? You know what this section might feel like over here? Thinking, I want to be a part of this section over here. I want that kind of thing happening in my life. I want to come to church and I don't want to just slip in and sit down and slip out and leave. I want to be there with people that know me. They know what's going on and they're engaged in this with me. And we're about kingdom things together. That's the picture that Jesus is giving us. That's the picture that the scripture gives us. And that's why when I sit alone with myself and I'm talking to Jesus about my own life, my own family, my own church, and I just think, we're not there. God, would you give us the grace to move our experience closer to what it is that you want for Because that's the kind of family he wants us to have. That's what he wants us to experience. That kind of radical community. But it's, like I said, it's not just about us being together. It's not just about us knowing each other and meeting each other's needs. Because when God's spirit is at work in and through a community of people, it goes outward. It doesn't stay just like this. It turns inside out because this love and this family is for everyone. There's a missional zeal that happens when God's spirit is at work in and through his people. And we see this in this description of this community. Peter immediately, his gut level response, when a few weeks earlier his gut level response was fear of a little girl, his gut level response is proclaim to everyone that will listen to me who Jesus is and what he's done for them. 3,000 people are added to the kingdom. And then we see this little band of believers starting to live their life together. And this is what the Lord says. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Every day people were being added. It was magnetic because who wouldn't want to live in a group like that where those kind of things are going on? It was magnetic. People wanted to be a part of that. But it was expansive because love doesn't just stay Love is made to give away to others. And that's exactly what they did. Because their lives were being so transformed, they couldn't help but talk about it. They couldn't help but want to invite people into what they were experiencing. So on the one hand, they just powerfully displayed the reality of the gospel with their lives, but they also declared it with their lips. They had a missional zeal. And this group of people couldn't be stopped. If we were to fast forward where we go from the writing of this to the beginning of the fourth century, 313 AD, Constantine signs the Edict of Milan that makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. What happened along the way? It was these people living this way in and amongst the people around them that transformed the culture. Massive transformation in the Roman Empire because these people simply living this out. 
simply living out what they had watched Jesus do with them. And as we start to see this band of believers start to grow, in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we see that there's an incredible pushback that comes because everyone is trying to silence them. These unschooled, ordinary men and women are having such an influence, it's like we are going to squash this. They come to the point where their desire to squash it ends in Stephen losing his life. They stoned Stephen. Right after he preaches a powerful message, they gnashed their teeth and they picked up rocks and they stoned Stephen to death. We're going to do anything to shut you up. But there was such a missional zeal that comes with the DNA of being part of God's family that they could not be stopped. Acts chapter 8, 1, it says this, on that day, meaning the day that Stephen was martyred, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Get the picture there? They're in Jerusalem. This persecution comes and suddenly they're scattered to Judea and Samaria. Does that sound familiar to something that Jesus said? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This persecution breaks out, spreads people. Looks like maybe hope is lost. But you know what happens? These people that carry the DNA of what it means to be a gospel community get spread everywhere. Bad plan for the Roman Empire. Turned it absolutely upside down. It's like the the first law of spiritual thermodynamics. The greater the heat, the greater the persecution, the greater the expansion. You can't stop communities that are full of God's spirit and living out the realities of his kingdom. You just can't. And that's what we see as these people left Jerusalem. They left, but they had the DNA. They had that passionate spirituality where they sought God in powerful ways, sought his kingdom breakthrough. They had a radical community. They knew how to live life together sacrificially with one another. And they had a missional zeal because they had a message that mattered, a message that was gonna change the world. When we see God's spirit at work in and through his people, that's the picture Friends, I feel like the question that we've got to ask is, where is my life in relation to that picture? I know as I've wrestled with this over the last two or three years, there have been a lot of things that the Lord is surfacing in my life. Deep desires to want to believe him for greater kingdom breakthrough. I want to throw away any biases that I've had in the past in terms of what God can or can't do today. I'm going to trust him for big things. I'm going to try to figure out how do I create space in my life for room for people? How do I create opportunities to live sacrificially for other people? Live in that kind of a community with people. How do we lead others in kingdom mission? How do I do that with my family and with others? Displaying the gospel with our life but declaring it with our lips. There's so many things that the Lord is transitioning in my life because I know that what he's saying to me is there's more. Bob, there's more. I want you to experience more of me. 
And what I know to be true because of all the conversations I've had is there's a lot of other people that are saying, I think there's more as well. Here's what I want you to do. I don't know what the more is for you. I don't want to tell you what the more is for you. But I know that God has it in his mind. And he wants to give that to you. So here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to just put your things aside. And I just want you to open your heart and your life and your mind before God. And just say, God, in light of the things that I've heard, what are you asking me to do? What does more look like for me? What does it look like for me to live into this picture of what it means to be part of the family of God? Ask the Lord that question, and I'm going to pray for us in just a couple of minutes. Father, I want to thank you for your scriptures. I want to thank you that you're willing to show us what it looks like to live out the values of your kingdom with you and with others in ways that have an incredible impact in the world around us. And God, I just want to confess before my friends that I'm that person that in so many ways has sought to lower your scriptures to the level of my experience rather than to trust you to raise my experience to the level of what we see in scripture God I don't want to do that anymore Father I pray for me I pray for my friends that are here that you would show us the next steps. God, what is it? What is more for us? God, as you show us that picture, God, I pray that you'd give us courage to step into it, to walk into it, to pray into it, move into it. It's gonna be different. It's gonna be unusual. But God, we know that one day we're gonna stand before you and give an account for how we lived our lives. God, we want to honor you. We want to trust you for big things. God, I just pray that your spirit would come in power in this place and through these people. For your name's sake, Jesus. Amen.